BatmanUniverse.net presents TBU Collected, a look at collected and reissued stories featuring the Batman. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of TBU Collected. Today we're going to be reviewing Batman Year 100, written and illustrated by Paul Pope. With me today I have... This is Donovan. This is Stella. And we have a very special guest with us today, Christina Collins from DarkNightNews.com. Christina, why don't you say hello and tell us a little bit about your guys' site. What's up, guys? Hey, uh, well, as Ed has said, I'm from Dark Knight News. And basically, to really summarize it all together, we're like the TMZ of Batman. Anything that's about Batman, it's up on the site. We talk about it. And, you know, we we kind of tried to keep everything current and as well as entertaining. I mean, I think for the most part, most of our fans or any fan, Batman fan, they can also say that we've been entertaining. There's um, some explicit stuff we say, but the thing is we always keep it Batman related. So that's basically dark Knight news for you guys. And their podcast comes out every two weeks and you have heard uh, Donovan Stella and myself fall on it at one point in time. So if you guys haven't checked them out, please do so. They do a very, very good podcast. Yes. All right. So today we got Batman Year 100, written and illustrated by Paul Pope, colored by Jose Belarciba. Um This series actually premiered in February to May 2006 and was a limited edition prestige format series, uh, which was generally considered to be one of the Elseworlds books. It's been packaged together a lot of times over the years and most recently was released in April of 2013. Um, all of the collected editions of this story also feature Paul Pope's story, Batman in Berlin, uh, also packaged in the back of it. Uh, the story opens in the year 2039, and Batman is being chased across the rooftops of Gotham by agents of the federal government. During the chase, we cut to a scene of some government officials observing the surveillance of the fight, and they remark several times the Batman of Gotham does not exist. After some conclusive visual evidence is shown during the fight, they summon Agent Tibble to the White House. Back in the scene, we see Batman escape the federal officers, but that one of them is killed and the Batman has been seriously wounded. Goss, the medical examiner of Gotham City, is now introduced in the scene as she receives a call from Gordon, who we will later learn is a descendant of the original Commissioner Gordon. Gordon lets Goss know that she is needed at a crime scene. The next call she receives is from the Batman, who said he is in need of urgent medical attention. Gordon arrives at the crime scene, but the federal authorities pull rank and take the scene over. With Gord no longer needing Goss, she is free to help the Batman with his injuries. Tibble begins his interrogation of Gordon, who he thinks may have more insight into the Batman than he is letting on. The police on the scene manage to collect a sample of Batman's DNA. Batman awakens the next day to find that his wounds have been seen to by Goss and her daughter, and Robin is also present, who has been working on new gadgets and forms of transportation for Batman overnight. Back at the GCPD, we see Gordon and his team going to the historical records, looking for clues about Batman, and find evidence from appearances in 1939, 1968, and 1986. <laughs> Gordon believes that it must be a different man taking on the mantle at different points in history, because no one can be that old. That morning, Batman is having trouble remembering key events from last night, and he asks his friend to leave him alone so he can meditate and attempt to gain clarity on what has happened. After some time, he realizes that he must go see the body of the dead agent from the day before. 
Gordon finally gets his hand on the official GCPD file about the Batman, but it has almost no information in it. Tibble is back on the scene and gives him 12 hours to come up with more information for him. Gordon decides to investigate the crime scene for himself from yesterday and finds video evidence that the dead officer was shot by other agents and not by Batman. Gordon is caught on the scene that he is not supposed to be at and given a beating at the hands of the federal officers. Batman at this point has broken into the morgue where the body of the dead officer is being kept and finds that he has a fake tooth that is out of place and steals the evidence. The feds are on to him, though, and before he can make his escape, he is told through his earpiece by Robin that they have DNA evidence from him in the building that he needs to destroy before he leaves. After a firefight, he eventually escapes the building but is confronted by a telepath who wants to know who he is. He manages to get away without allowing any more information to go and then makes his escape on a motorcycle into the night. Gordon has showed up at Goss's office in need of some medical attention after his beating at the hands of the federal agents and tells her the story of Arkham Asylum, where he was the warden of before coming to the GCPD. It was Pravatska, Tibble's boss, who showed up one afternoon and told him that he had a solution for the revolving door of supercriminals at Arkham Asylum. All Gordon and his men had to do was leave for one night and come back in the morning. Gordon and his men co- comply and come back the next morning to find the entire asylum sterilized from top to bottom. Not one soul remained. Gordon decides he needs some time away at his family's cabin in the woods to think things over. Batman and his allies examine the false tooth he took off the dead body in the morgue and find out that it is a flash drive. What is on the flash drive is a recipe for a doomsday biological weapon known as the Flesh Killer. After some disagreement, Batman decides they must attempt to stop Frozatka's plan to use the Flesh Killer. We cut to Gordon in the family cabin where he has found the original Commissioner Gordon's laptop and after many attempts guesses the correct password, Bruce Wayne. The computer holds the secret history of the Batman compiled by Commissioner Gordon. Tibble contacts Gordon and wants to know if he has the Batman file to give him yet, and they make arrangements to meet so Gordon can give it to him. He is then also contacted by Batman, who would also like to meet him. After some back and forth with both parties, Gordon plans to meet both of them at the same place. When dawn comes, Tibble, Pravetska, and the telepath are all there when Gordon arrives. He hands him the file, but the telepath knows that Gordon knows more than he is telling him. Batman breaks in at the last minute and shares the fact that the telepath is also planning on double-crossing the entire lot of them. Batman reveals that he has put the entire Flesh Killer plot out on the internet, as well as the cure for it. After the men are subdued, Gordon gives Batman the last copy of the secret file on him, and Batman disappears into the night. Okay, guys, we got some questions here. Um, question number one, and we're going to start with the big one off the bat. Is this Bruce Wayne, or has someone else taken over the mantle of the Batman? Uh, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> and I was asked, that's probably like the most pertinent question in the story. Um, I don't know. If you're looking for an answer from Donovan, you're not going to get it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> uh you know, it would be really cool if it is, and I would like to see that, you know, because I mean, we don't, there's a lot we don't know about this, you know, this year, 2039, uh, so uh, within the realm of, you know, plausible deniability is possible, um, but, you know, they, they go on the idea that, like, Batman's been out since specifically 1939, been, been throughout the ages, so ideally, you know, realistically, it wouldn't be, but... Um, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, it's it's. I don't know, but I think that like the the idea of whether he is or not is cool enough that I I don't really need to know. Okay. Is this an Elseworlds? Are we or are we considering this like within Batman mythos? It's never tagged as an Elseworlds story specifically. 
but it appeared at the time when you remember there was like that five years where they were pumping out Elseworlds like every month. It seemed like. Oh yeah, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So it came out during that Elseworlds time. <laughs> that's, what you in the, call it. that's what we call the nineties. Um, <laughs> but it's never specifically called an Elseworlds, and it doesn't bear an Elseworlds imprint on the cover. So okay, I don't know. yeah. So if <clears throat> I think if it is an Elseworlds, I think it's. It is Bruce Wayne, like the original Bruce Wayne, um, and I, I wouldn't put it past him and, and, frankly, the future, once you think about everything that we've sort of done anyways, that he does gain some sort of superhuman ability to outlast time. Okay. Or, of course, you always do have the option of finding Lazarus Pits, right? Um, I think for this story, if we take it as this is the actual timeline and this is, um, you know, Batman and we had Bruce Wayne before. I think that it's maybe his name is Bruce Wayne, but it's not the original. Uh, I, I think that perhaps he is somehow related to him, but um, I, I don't think that it's the Bruce Wayne. His name could be Bruce Wayne, but I think he's somebody else. You know, for this, I love the fact that we have no clue who the hell he is because it makes it such a mystery because in some Batman books, you're able to just get a gist of what's going on and the audience knows what's going on, but the characters don't. And it's like this time around, the characters as well, the audience doesn't know who the hell he is and what makes him so you know, mystifying. And I just love the fact that he doesn't have a name. Even towards the end of the book, you know, Commissioner Gordon kind of comes off and says, you know, Bruce says the name Bruce to him, and he's like, but why are you... It's like, no, nothing's been confirmed of it, and I love it. I really, I really do, and, you know, could it be Bruce? He seems like he has the Bruce tendencies. He's distant. He's off to himself. He kind of tells everyone to go away, come back, and he has the essence of him, but it doesn't necessarily have to be Bruce. I just, you know, I just kind of feel that it's not him, and, you know, the idea of Batman is that he is someone or he is something that will live on forever, whether it be someone, be Bruce Wayne himself or somebody else. You know, it's the essence of Batman that everyone looks for. And I think that in this book, it really does hit a home run there. So I I just, I don't believe it really is Bruce Wayne. That's what I'm really saying. I'm going to come down the side that I don't think it's Bruce Wayne, but I also wouldn't be maddened by someone who says it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a, Stella hit on a really good point, which is it really depends on do you book you view this book in some type of continuity or as a separate standalone story. So I think the kind of the cool thing about it, although I'm going to say I don't think it's Bruce Wayne, is the fact that it could be Bruce Wayne and it allows you to interpret the story. Has really got a lot of areas which you can interpret kind of however you want to, mm-hmm. um, and kind of leaves it open. So I, I personally think that that kind of open ended part of the book is 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 one of the cooler parts parts about it so my vote is no he's not bruce wayne and donovan did do you have a definitive subject on this a thumbs up or thumbs down i'm gonna pin you down here (laughs) let go of me um what's your gut what's your gut tell you is it bruce wayne or is it not you know what when i was reading this when i first started reading this and and i remember when i kind of skimmed through it back in 2006 the one thing i took away from it was was that it was intentionally ambiguous whether it was bruce or not I think part of me just wants to be contrarian and say yes, but also I think that like essentially, you know, using the essence of of who Bruce Wayne is, you could say so because there's not besides besides the timeline, there's not really anything else that differentiates him from Bruce Wayne. So I say 
I don't want to say it is because I I don't have any empirical evidence to make the definitive answer and you know pretend that I you know that's my core belief. But I am inclined to say it is more than it isn't based off of what we're given the story. Okay, well you know there, there's a there's a really good uh, website out there called the Anime Batman, which uh, a very well spoken uh, writer and philosopher writes about Batman. He made this one uh, article which, which you know began with a catechism, you know, who is Batman? He's Bruce Wayne. And then he described who Bruce Wayne was. And then he went to who is Bruce Wayne? He is Batman. He described what Batman was. If you were to define Bruce Wayne by the money and, you know, the dead parents and the black hair and uh, the the good storylines, the bad storylines, I suppose, and that's how you differentiate it. But the way he operates and the way he kind of goes after crime, to me, it feels so essentially Batman, you know, which, which you know, goes back to Bruce Wayne. That I don't think that uh, there's any, I don't think that there, uh, there's enough evidence to, to make a difference. You know, I guess you, could, you know, I guess you want to kind of, kind of nail it down. You know, whether this is the exact same person or not. But uh, there's enough similarities for me to say that you know, based on its ambigu, you know, its its intentional ambiguity. Uh, sure. She's about to yes. spank me, isn't it? <laughs> no, no. Um, well, I just I, I'm sort of thinking about this, and the entire time I was reading this, I really got a Batman Year One feel. Because, I mean, we start off uh, with this police, um, you know, police entrance or chasing him. And I thought, oh, man, this is definitely sort of that that third act that we see there where they're in the building Mm -hmm. and he's got to elude them and everything. And the reason why I feel like it's probably not Bruce Wayne is because if he is he he found some way to get the Fountain of Youth, he wouldn't be making sort of these rookie mistakes because it really does seem like Mm -hmm. this particular Batman is at the beginning of his career. And even the storyline sort of attests to the fact that it's been a long time since they've seen this and now he's come back after you know all these people are starting to see this stuff so whereas if he had been around the entire time then no one would really be shocked that there's some this guy in the night uh he seems a bit more jovial than bruce uh am i i mean he's still serious to be sure but it seems like he does joke around a little bit and he even smiles which is something that you just really don't really see i think with uh with bruce and batman i just remember at the very end when he says you know robin suit up uh when they decide to do that um but i do agree i mean his cast even though they're different uh i I think that there are still sort of threads to the cast that we're used to with batman but in my in my opinion i feel like this feels like a very different if this were bruce wayne a different bruce wayne character Mm -hmm. if we're going to relate to him at all i think it would be at the very beginning of his career but he just seems like um a lighter and then with the teeth thing i don't know if uh (laughs) yeah I mean, uh, you know, Batman, he is into the theatrics, and that's certainly something Mm -hmm. that Nolan, I I think, really got into with his movies and everything. But that seems like over, over the top, you know, to have these teeth and almost seem like this really mythical monster to strike fear, even more fear than necessary. So I I certainly, I appreciate your points, and I I definitely think that they are well made. I I just, from my point of view, I think that uh, this particular character is different from the Bruce Wayne that we've read. I think, we, uh, I think what could inform uh, the possibility that it is Bruce Wayne is that they kind of go through – I mean the, the cops you know, go through it and say, you know, well, he was you – know, 1966, he was this guy, and then here's a photo of him. And in 1986, he was fat, and you know, they kind of, you know, they kind of uh, entertain the idea that it's most likely different people throughout those different eras because of the, you know, those are different interpretations of Batman. But you know, the kind of – one of the – more pertinent themes of Batman is him being interpreted in different ways, but still being the same. 
and I think that could also go along with this version. Um, I'm not really going, you know, like say like like this is why you're wrong, but it's another mm-hmm. kind of way to consider if it mm-hmm. could be Bruce Wayne. Okay, I mean, did, when reading this book, did they say that he was fat, or they were just because in the book, you know, you have uh, the grandson uh, Jim Gordon. He's going through the files of the original Jim, the Jim Gordon Senior. He's going through the files, and he says that his grandfather was there. They knew each other and so forth. Did they ever imply that there was a fat Batman, or this is just from our own knowledge of the Dark Knight Returns? Well, well I think they said they actually say, "Oh, nineteen eighty-six. He looked. He kind of looked fat." Yeah, okay. they they and they show um like a picture of him from '86, and he's definitely a beefy Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, Frank Miller. Yeah, uh, you know it's funny because you, you guys all made really good points. I read an interview online with Paul Pope, and he actually someone asked him flat out if it was Bruce Wayne, and he said the clue is in the teeth, for whatever that means. So <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, he said he said the clue's in the teeth. So I didn't get anything definitive from the teeth. I, you know, Stella brought up the theatrical aspect, but. Yeah, to, according to, to Mr. Pope, the whole idea, if he's Bruce Wayne or not, is in the teeth. Hmm. So he's pulled one over on all of us because I don't know what he's talking about. Well, everything's not <laughs> cheap in this book. Yeah. Well, there goes my night's sleep. Yeah, yep, the teeth get you. Okay, on to the second point, everybody. Gordon, we have the, the scene here where Gordon talks about what happens at Arkham Asylum and the fact that the mm-hmm. feds come in and essentially kill all the supervillains as a – you know, this is their solution to the revolving door of security at Arkham. And my question is, you know, I don't think we've ever seen that actually happen in a Batman book before, but do you think their solution has some credit to it? I mean, it does stop the supervillain problem once and for all. But, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, like ideally, uh, one of everyone's favorite and uh, most uh, redundant questions to ask is like, why don't they just kill the villains? Uh, it really speaks of fascism to go into a, a mental hospital essentially and kill everybody just because they are criminally insane. I mean, you know, in a comic book world, you kind of get away with it because they're basically, they're bad guys. They're the villains. They are, they serve as villains, but ideally in terms of the narrative of the story, they aren't really supposed to do that. So, um, you know, that would be really easy and probably, you know, we don't, everybody would be better off for it. But, but because of the, if you're going to, you know, ask this question, I think because of the nature of that, the fact that, you know, people like Harvey Dent and, uh, uh, Jonathan Crane, all those people are legitimately mentally handicapped. I think that's probably not the most moral thing to do. But um, I open the floor to anyone else's opinions. Uh, yeah, I think this is something that's well. I would say it's not a good idea. Um, in real life, in the comic books, <laughs> I think that maybe it is a good idea. Can I play that card? Sure. Uh, the, the well, because um. It's true. I mean, we deal with this at all the time. There really is this revolving door. And, you know, everyone that gets killed and comes back to life is basically always comes at Batman and says, why don't you fix this issue? Uh, Jason Todd did it uh, at, when he came back as Red Hood and even said, you know, it, it never would have happened with Barbara, you know, getting shot by the Joker if, uh, if, you, <laughs> if, if you had ended it right there. Now, I certainly agree. I think there are probably more violent offenders that, like the Joker, I think would be at the top of my list. But I think that there are other people, like Calendar Man may not necessarily be um, – the top of my list to get rid of, but Zaz certainly would be. But that would solve a lot of problems. But the fact of the matter is also you have to think about just the idea of a vacuum and 
bad things and this is something i think tor gets into as well because she said you know if it's not this it's just going to be something else when she's trying to decide whether to push that strange red yeah. ball that i don't know what it is but you know if you get rid of those villains there is going to be something else that's going to have to fill the void of these crazies but you do wonder how i mean they got to do something to keep this this uh, i don't know this back and forth that you know they go in and somehow they get released or just they escape and then you got to put them back in again so how do you fix that so in one way yes it's definitely extreme i I don't think in real life we should ever do that but in the comic world i think maybe you should get rid of the really violent offenders um you know i've always believed that you know and everyone can agree that you know, these characters, they hang around because you still have a mass freak, you know, Batman always around. So these people are always going to come back up. And, you know, for one one thing is that Batman can't live without these villains because each villain is a part of him. And that's how you create a rogues gallery. And if you kill any of them off, there's just going to be something bigger, badder than the one you just originally killed. I mean, it's kind of like this is the hell, you know, I know this devil. You know, I don't want to know any other kind of devil that's bigger and badder. So if you know this devil, you know the tricks, you know the, the gags, you know what they're going to pull because they are predictable and you can get through it easy, you know, much better. But whereas you have someone who's who's new, who's fresh on the market, they are so unpredictable and it's more dangerous that way. And if you're if you ever kill off Joker, someone comes up and becomes a bigger Joker like um this is similar to what we have in New 52. You have the Penguin, who is now trumped, who's now taken down by the Emperor Penguin, and he is much worse than the original Penguin. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, everyone hates the name, but I think it's great because he is worse than anybody else. He doesn't play by the rules. He doesn't know the game. Every one of them knows the game. Poison Ivy, Penguin, Catwoman, Two-Face, they all know each other, and they know not to cross certain boundaries. This guy, Emperor Penguin, won't. So as far as killing off people, I would just say, you know, I'd rather keep my demons <laughs> at bay than to substitute for a new one. So, I, 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 you know, does it solve a solution? Yes. But do does it really help with the city? No. It makes it manageable. I'm all about things being manageable. So I'd rather not kill anybody. Yeah, and when I when I read it, one of the things that kind of struck me about it was I wondered if the fact that the decision of the government to step in and kind of put these criminals down coincided with the fact that I think this is the period where Batman's no longer active, you know, and that if they do get out now, they don't have a, a kind of a fallback position in Batman to take care of, of the problem. Mm-hmm. So if, if you've got this kind of super criminal element and you don't have any more superheroes, you know, it might become more necessary to kind of do this type of, uh, of genocidal thing because you don't have a, you don't have a way to deal with them the next time they walk out that front door. Um, and then the, the, kind of a follow-up question here is we've touched on some of this, but there's definitely a, a political undertone that goes to this book a lot like we see in Frank Miller's stories. Without having to talk about personal politics at all, Does you know do you like books like this that have a political theme running through it, or do you prefer your comics stay out of the political aspect altogether? You know, I really like comic books that – feel genuine and honest and for lack of a better term real because i like to believe in a fantasy that i can kind of wrap my head around and kind of imagine to the point where 
you know, you can kind of, you know, you can see it happen. You can, your imagination is the best when it's it's closer to reality, honestly. You know, that, that, that kind of, kind of, it's like kind of that, that that fine line between, you know, what's real and what it isn't. And I like that's what that's why I think that you know the Frank Miller Batman stories hit so hit so hard and you know really hit a nerve because it re, kind of it sort of you know reestablished what kind of character Batman was and put up against these extremely believable threats like corruption and you know clinical insanity all that kind of stuff. Um, this one, I mean, I. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly. We're going into like our general thoughts, but I'll say right now that like when I read this for this podcast, I really enjoyed this because uh, it. I'm not sure how it just it was a storytelling of the nature of the storytelling or just that kind of like the setting, but it really felt like a sort of like hyper realistic. I say that you know in quotes, like you know, sort of like a <laughs> story. But it had, it had a bit of I you know there's a bit of Batman Year One. There's a bit of Batman Beyond. I, I kind of found with like. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking like the, like the pilot where like Batman's being chased by like you know uh, powers uh, soldiers or whatever. But like I, f- I really like the whole um, kind of co- like you know like it's always fun to see Batman fight the police. Personally, I think some of the best Batman stories always have him up against the police. You know, from you know Year One and uh, Doctor Returns to even the Master of the Phantasm and uh, Dark Knight and Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises. So like I think that. Uh, that always kind of like is really you know what I need in Batman story, but uh, in terms of how political it was, um, I just got a sense that it was you know just kind of believable. I didn't really get a sense that like he was trying to say one thing or you know trying to usher in or espouse an idea of, of a certain polit- a political uh, agenda or anything. Uh, I just thought it was a well told story personally. I didn't I didn't think that like you know if I think if the general political concept with Batman is that you know you need somebody to sort of rise up against something else outside of the law uh i guess but i mean it just works for the story so um whatever whatever they did here whether it was political or not it worked for me um let's see i partially agree with don that it is nice to have it somewhat steeped uh in realistic situations but at the same time i think that uh, at least for me, you know, I enjoy reading comics uh, because it is a form of, you know, escapism and you are able to sort of leave uh, the stuff that you're dealing with and the stuff that's going on in the world and almost find joy or at least some fun in whatever you're reading. Uh, so I don't want to be too heavily bogged down by stuff that <laughs> is going on in the everyday world and now it's like happening in my um, my X-Men comics or my Batman comics or whatever it is. But I think that this, because it is, I think that this, it toes a really nice, or it steps on, I don't, what, maybe toes is better, who knows. But, but anyways, it's it draws a nice line and it sort of steps on either side of it because, yes, it's got some some messages, I think, going on, especially just with the police state, uh, that sort of status going on in the story, as well as... Um, so that's somewhat realistic just because there are some some countries that have that sort of situation. But then I think we're a, we're a far cry from it right now, at least in the United States. So it was far away and a little unbelievable enough to still be okay for me to, to read it and not be like really sort of bristled and, and upset. Oh, no, this is too close to reality. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Uh, it was actually something that I would have liked to have learned a little bit more about because the entire time 
one of the things that just continued to confuse me, and I think I just need to read it again and perhaps uh, more closely, is just, the, I mean, the wolves, the panthers, we're throwing out these names, oh, FPC, yeah. and just knowing who they are, because you only get sort of a vague idea of what they are, like they, that they are federal, but okay. So how does that rank with, you know, GCPD? Apparently they trump GCPD, but what's the difference between a wolf and a panther? How did this police state actually come to be? That was some like minor background that, I mean, you didn't have to get too far into it, I think, but I, I would have liked to have known how this sort of all began because it just seems like we're thrown in the middle of of a you know a pre-existing state and storyline and well how does that happen because I think it would have added a little bit for me but I guess the easy answer you know to answer the actual question I think for this one it's fine because it's somewhat realistic but then you know it's it's somewhat fantastical as well so I think it's a nice in between. Well, I'm just going to answer your, your question, Stella, because I just listened to an interview with, um, from Paul Pope. Basically, he said that the whole thing about the Panthers and the Wolves is the fact that they're in competition with each other. Much like in any police um, department, they have like certain squads, and they're kind of like against each other for reputation, recognition. Uh, having some sort of respect. So all of them are fighting each other to get Batman. Like, who's the first one to get him? Let's go. Um, you know, but when it really comes down to it, they all get trumped because Batman takes them all on all at once. And it's scary because if you have someone who's, like, called the Wolves and they're supposed to be the biggest, baddest group, and he takes them down and makes the rest of them feel like crap. <laughs> um, so you have... So that's that's because I was wondering about that, too, because I never understood what what that was about until I heard that interview. But as far as the question is concerned, um, politics wise, political wise, I don't like politics too much because it does trend. It kind of just treads a little bit of a touchy side. But as far as this was concerned, it's a general question towards people about uh, the idea of Big Brother, the idea of privacy being invaded. And it was published in. 2006 so and that's post 2011 um i mean post uh, 9-11 and basically the whole idea of your privacy being invaded especially in this book where um jim gordon is pursued by um tibble and tibble says i have your colonoscopy he's like how did you get that it's like nothing is nothing is ever um secret and this whole thing about privacy is here today where you have twitter you have people who who mm-hmm. hack into stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I love that kind of stuff because sometimes you need a dose of reality to be in a, a, a piece of literature so people can get it. And I love the the exaggeration of it to the point where it's like, oh, my God, that's just too much TMI. But it's true because one day, you know, and this book can stand a test of times as an example of this whole, you know, post 9-11 thing that has happened even in the nolan film they did the exact same thing where every mic every microphone in your phone in your kitchen in your computer was used to find joker and that is an extreme use of invading someone's privacy i mean you hear everything that's how bad it was and the whole thing about that you know what i love from it is the fact that it's a huge exaggeration it's like what can it be like the let the imagination run wild and free and let it be grounded enough where it's like, 
you can see this happening 20 years from now, 30 years from now. So as far as politics is concerned, like if it was about, you know, at this moment, it's about gay marriage. No, I wouldn't pursue it. But as far as like it's a governmental thing where, you know, it's being used today by social media, by people in general. Yeah, use it, exaggerate it and make it believable. So, you know, it's kind of like you have to be use politics as a discretion as a writer. So I'm for it. But, you know, it has to be a topic that everyone can relate to and not be so much against. Yeah. And uh, I'll just kind of like elaborate on that point is that um, I really don't, I don't like knowing the political agenda of the writer, whether it's, you know, whether it coincides with my personal, my personal politics or whether it's against my personal politics, I don't like to be in that in, in, you know, whatever I read, because that's just making an agenda. That's telling me what to think. And that's yeah. basically being very biased and very immature in telling a story. I don't mind politics being being put in there, but only if it serves a story and the characters. You know, if certain characters have conflicting politics, or if a story is political, that's one thing. But I don't like it when people at like their. I don't like it when writers at like their politics are the end all be all because they they kind of take their readers for granted. And I want I kind of want to be given a bit more credit than that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with with a little bit of what everybody said in that. I think that this story does it well where. You know, something Donovan brought up was they do it in the background. It, it's a subplot, and it's not totally in your face. Like, you must do this. You must believe this. You know? I think it's okay the way it's shown in this book. But I think we've all read issues or comics where it's too in your face. And sometimes it doesn't matter if you agree with the political point of view or not. Um, you know, I think Stella, Stella said it perfectly. This is a type of escapism reading. And sometimes I don't want it to be too realistic. Um, I'm not opposed to the occasional story that touches on those themes, but I think I like it to uh, to remain in the background, kind of like we have uh, have here in this story. Um, something else I wanted to hit on that Sella just brought up that I think is really important in this book. I was going to do it a little later, but I think this is the perfect time for it. Is this story is devoid of almost any background going into it, uh, as we talked about with the Panthers, with Batman is just on the scene. We don't know how he started, where he came from. Is he Bruce Wayne? Is he not? And over the years, we've all heard people that said, you know, too much exposition, let's get straight to the action. This story literally gets straight to the action in the first scene with no backstory. Um, what did you guys think about the, the total lack of backstory in the book? Do you think some more would have helped, or do you think that this was the way, the way to do it? Just jump right in. I think there are, there are spots where it could probably enhance the understanding of the world. But by and large, I enjoyed it because uh, – this book kind of like really carried me by the emotions the characters are feeling. You know, it just starts off with Batman running and dogs are chasing them and everything. It's very, very intense. And I think with this sort of like world where you're introduced to a world that's different than your own and different from what you're used to, where exposition is required, you know, at, at, in some one form or another, that's always a tricky thing in writing. And I think that this story does it well because it just makes you – it forces you to care about what's going on because the characters are all in a state where they don't know what's going to happen. You know, you're right on board with these characters who you don't – you may not know, but you're, you're knowing the situation as they're knowing the situation. It comes at you as it comes at them. So I think that was a really clever way to sort of get the story rolling. And um, again, I mean I wasn't, I wasn't left here understanding like 100% of the story. You know, probably like you know, like around like the late nineties, but you know, still there were some bits of that I, I didn't really fully grasp. But I got you know, basically the whole thing, and I think that like uh, that to me is just just in part because I don't really care to you know, it doesn't really matter to me because I still really much enjoyed it. So I think that like 
the way they kind of had a story running, the way they didn't really, uh, you know, expose it a lot with like, you know, some news report or anything like that was <laughs> really, uh, it was, it was a bit brave and, and, uh, even more, uh, intelligent, I think. Yeah, I guess instead of the news reporter, they just had sort of the weird sort of Marvel-esque headlines at the beginning of the book and then the uh, the transcripts from the recordings. But then again, I mean, that's just about the Batman and, like, what people are seeing and how he's described. I would have really liked to have some more backstory. Being thrown in is fine because, yeah, definitely it pushes you towards action and it, it skips all of that stuff. But I just think that there were some really mandatory questions uh, that need to be needed to be answered. And given that I wasn't finding out anything about the police state, how, how it originated and difference between Panthers and uh, the Wolves. Uh, thank you, uh, Christina, for, for enlightening me on that for sure. Um, uh, I was quite concerned that we weren't going to know what this Arkham Asylum business was because it was just sort of dropped like don't Jim I know about Arkham and I thought well I don't know about Arkham but luckily because <laughs> so that means nothing to me but so I was glad that he actually went into that because I think that played a big part in the end because even someone else brought up this isn't going to be another Arkham is it so um, I was glad that happened but I would have liked to have and, and I feel like we don't need to be overwhelmed with it but just a little bit would have been wonderful you know, when I read this thing, when I first started reading it, it was, I just felt, and I had just gotten off a podcast about neo-noir, and I am a fan of noir stuff, so whenever it comes up mystery, drama, and whatnot, I'm I'm soaked into it. And for me, personally, I'm okay without much backstory, because for me, I invest more into it, like, I start reading pages. If I know parts of the beginning, it's like, okay, I can always like make dots of where it's going to go and all the possibilities of how it's going to end and sometimes i'm right and other times i'm wrong but for this one it's like i'm on the edge of my seat when i read this and i think that was sometimes it's the purpose um i guess for this book it was a purpose you don't know what's going on it makes you want to read more makes you want to flip the pages more makes you want to read all four (laughs) books more and you know as a noir in in that genre basically you're dealing with a character, a lead character, a hard-boiled detective or whoever it is, whoever's the hard-boiled person in the story. They're trying to figure out as much as you are what's going on. And it's kind of like when it comes to a mystery, whoever is talking or whoever's leading the story, right now, you know, it's Batman or, you know, maybe it's just you as a reader. You're pretty much being tagging along, trying to figure out what's going on, what's going down. And I like that for the most part for this book and it really feels like a noir or maybe some people might want to call it neo-noir because it has such a uh, a huge amount of subtext such as the politics of big brother and politics of privacy and uh, the fact that it's set in 2039 it's kind of like has a bit of a blade runner kind of feel to it you know everything is dark and gritty and you're dealing with you know science science fiction all at the same time so it can be a new noir that's up for discussion but you know most part you're being pulled along for the ride and it's great and you know it, it is a roller coaster ride for the most part and you know for the number one thing is i don't mind too much about it i mean yes there could have been some explanation like arkham but for me i just liked the book the way it is point blank simple i could you know when the first time i read this book i thought 
I don't, you know, I, I want to know more. I want to know some more concrete answers. I like some backstory. But now that I've read it again, I think I kind of like it the way it is. I think I kind of like the idea of us not knowing. And I think that the lack of backstory actually makes you be more engaged in the book because you, you, you spend a lot of time thinking. It isn't spelled out. So when you see the, the panthers and the wolves and, and, and this stuff going on, you have to really think through, well, who are these guys? What could they be up? Because you don't really know. So I think it, by leaving out details, it almost makes it more engaging of a story. Um, and I kind of like that on the second reading. Like I said, the first time I read it, I was a little miffed by the fact that I just read, you know, read it 200 pages and had no idea really how it ended, you know, or where the story was going. But on second reading, I, I do. I think I like the way it, uh, it ended up. Can I just add like a few more things? Just you know, when you first see the ceramic teeth come up, it's kind of like, what the hell is that? It makes it. The whole book provides kind of like the mystic part of Batman. We all know that he's a human being, but no one else does. I mean, if this was a a new reader who just got into it, into Batman, picked this up just out of the, out of nowhere, and sat down, read, like they would probably have a question for themselves asking is batman a human of course he's a human being but like what's with the teeth and what's with you know this cool motorcycle isn't supposed to be set in the future and it just provides such a cool mystical view of who he is of who batman is and it makes you interested and excited for the character because it's like what else could he do because there's so many little bit of twists and turns that he and as batman in this book he is so unexpected like he does stuff, it's kind of like like what like what is that trigger in his hand? He blows things up, you know. And I just love the going for the ride part because I'm all about thrill. I'm all about seeking, you know, more to the story. I'm a whole. I'm really into action. And for Paul Pope to really give us dialogue when it needs to be dialogue, and less of you know the voiceover narration or the ter- internal monologues for a character while they're in action, which always pisses me off a lot. He allows the art to speak for itself, and it makes you want to turn the page even faster to get to where you need to be. And, you know, he paid a lot, and he said this in an interview, he paid a lot of attention to how Batman should be written, which is the thrill of the ride. And he felt that during the time of the production, I mean, the publication of the Batman comic books in 2006, he felt that a lot of that was lacking. So he wanted to do something different with this one. And maybe people might get it. Maybe people want want more, which is true. But for the most part, it, he went, he, he was set out to give you a ride, a thrill ride for you. And he provided it in this book. Next, next question for everyone here. We get to see Robin and a quite a different version of Robin here. And we're also given a different futuristic version of Oracle. I know there's at least one Oracle fan on this on this on this podcast. I know there's at least one Robin fan on this podcast. So, what did you guys think of uh, these different future versions of Robin and Oracle? Were they worthy of the names Robin and Oracle, or were they not? Um, actually, I I kind of like the uh, interpretations of uh, quote unquote Robin and quote unquote Oracle in this because um, it's interesting. It, 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 well, one, it adds further. You know, like like obviously these aren't Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, but um. I like. I always like the sort of spiritual uh, successors to Batman's sort of you know uh, supporting cast and you know his allies because I I I think that's sort of you know essential in the Batman story personally um, that he needs to sort of he needs to, those sort of like you know uh, contacts to sort of help him because 
you know, it's, there's a lot of uh, com- there's a lot of things that are compelling about Batman acting alone, but it's almost more compelling knowing how he has help in certain instances. And um, I like seeing you know different interpretations of those characters. To be honest, I like seeing you know Robin here being like a, sort of a mechanic and you know wisecracking guy who is willing to don a costume even if it's another Batman costume and help out when he can. I like the fact that Oracle does, you know, like, like, um, you know, Intel for him, you know, same as always. And, you know, to me, it, it feels very right. It feels very appropriate. So, um, I dug it. And, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, we're not really in a position to complain why isn't this the, the usual characters because this is, you know, in the future and it's another story and all that stuff. But, like, like uh, even if it wasn't, you know, even if this was about, you know, an alternate tale in modern day, I would still like it because I like seeing different takes on those characters. <laughs> Um, I, I liked it. Uh, I liked that it was a different thing. It was, it's kind of, you know, what's weird about this story. I do have to say, I think this is the time to do it is that it's almost like it's got this wonderful mind of its own and that it's, it's come up with things before other stuff has come out. So it's got this tooth, the tooth thing at the entire time I was reading the tooth, I thought to myself, Hey, this happened in night of the owls. Or Court of the Owls, I guess, because remember, there's the, oh, yeah. the tooth that's one of those things. And then you've got Robin being his real name, where that's kind of like the Dark Knight Rises, where actually, you know, his first name was Robin. And so so that's pretty cool. Um, I like, you know, just like Donovan said, you know, you've got this, the, the same connections between the characters that you had uh, in the original Batman, where... You know, Batman doesn't necessarily want Robin to step out too much and and work uh, too closely with him. You know, there's probably always going to be that concern, and I always think of Batman with Tim. He just really wanted him to sit behind what? the computer console at first because he didn't want him to get uh, too much out I'm there. And then you've got Robin saying, well, maybe I should get a name in my own costume. I'm thinking, oh, wow, Nightwing's coming. Um, so I, I thought, you know, it, it's great because you do have these connections, but it's not relying so heavily on that. I loved uh, this girl, Tora. And that, you know, you don't really call her Oracle. I think it's really just dropped that one time um, and it's like highlighted or it's bolded and italicized. So you are supposed to take notice to it. But, you know, it's great. She's got a mind of her own. Uh, She's intelligent. She's younger. I love how she's got a connection to Batman in a a few different ways. And, And I wonder what her history is. Just did she meet Batman first? Or did she meet him through her mother? Her mother sort of reminds me of an Alfred mix with a Leslie Tompkins, by the way. Um, but it's also great that, you know, she's got a mind of her own. She doesn't follow blindly. She was actually questioning it in the end, you know, is this something that I need to do? And that's a very, you know, Barbara-esque thing to do because she always considers sort of the, the repercussions of what's going to happen, and she makes mistakes all the time as well. Uh, Tora didn't make too many mistakes, but uh, and I love just that they're they're dutiful to him, and they, they stick behind him, and it, it seemed very much the Bat family that uh, we were used to uh, pre-New 52. So I think it's great. Yeah. Uh, it's tying back to the original, but Pope creates a cast of characters that is wholly his own as well. You know, I am as much of a fan of the Bath family as anyone, you know, because the thing about the Bath family is that they are different sides to him. And, you know, they're they're kind of a little bit more, some of them are a little bit more extroverted than others. And 
you know, it was great to see just the drops of names. And it's like, oh, my God, like, could it be Dick Grayson, Jason Todd? You know, I kind of felt that with this Robin um, that he had a mixture of recklessness, but he was calmed down. So I guess he's more Tim, um, not Tim. What am I talking about? Dick Grayson in a way. Um, but he's not the usual Robin that you would expect, you know, according to some sources that this is a, a quote unquote dark skinned um Purse, dark skin psychic and you know it's been told that he raised that this batman whoever he is raised him from when he was an orphan we don't know how how old he was but raised him from when he was young to into a full-grown man uh, according to chris gross in this in the graphic novel so it's like they all have essences of these characters and that's what i love about this about this book is the fact that the essence of the character is what she is what we as fans we kind of love and munch on like oh my god like this this has to be barbara gordon or maybe stephanie brown because she has blonde hair you know the essence of these characters is what we follow we kind of run towards you know blindly because you know in a way we kind of either we want to aspire to them or we admire them so much you know we just love them all and you know I love the drop, the fact that this Robin might become his own superhero. And that was even a better drop for me because it's like, yes, become more because that makes you want to read. Maybe hopefully they'll make another one, which they never will. But it just makes you so, it, you know, it kind of brings about a huge nostalgia for the the whole, I guess, the mythos of Batman and what he represents and the people who follow him. Because, you know, at some point you know, as a fan, maybe one day, if Batman was ever exist in this world, I probably would never do it. But if you were to follow this character, this person who lives in this real world, would you, who would you become? Dick Grayson, Tim Drake, Jason Todd, Barbara, Stephanie, who would you become as, you know, part of this family? And I just like the fact that he's, he doesn't really give birth to these children, but in a way he allows them to be part of his life and in a way gives them their own names and allows them to grow under his cape. And that that really does bring kids and young adults along for the ride to say, like, I don't just have to be Batman. I could be Dick Grayson. I could be Stephanie Brown. I could be Batgirl. You know, and I, I just love the Bat family in general, and that's just my love for it. So I think that this was, he executed very well, um, just just kind of rooting the essence of these characters. Yeah, I, I really felt like that the, the inclusion of Robin in an Oracle character, although this was a, a definitely a non-traditional Batman story, really made it feel like a, a more of a – I think without the inclusion of these characters, it wouldn't have felt like as much as a Batman story, you know? I don't think it would have had the same feel, but I think that you put Robin in there, you put you put an Oracle in there. Stella's description of Goss is is is, is dead on. He's half Alfred, half Leslie Tompkins. Tompkins. Um, I think without those kind of familiar type characters, it wouldn't have felt like the same story in a way. It would have felt much more disconnected from the regular world of of, of, of Batman continuity. So I think that these characters really kind of kind of grounded it as a Batman story for me. Um, and something Christina just touched on there as a sequel, just a quick quick question, or not quick, depending on how, how we want to talk about it, is would you guys like to see a sequel to this? Would you like to see another story by Paul Pope set in this universe? Um, I don't know, uh, because I think that stories really t- 
tend to lose some power when they're sort of diluted by sequels. I shouldn't say diluted. It's kind of derogatory. But um, I think this works really well as a one-and-done. Um, you know, we've seen great stories fall with sequels like Dark, Stri- Dark Knight Strikes Again. Huh? Uh, yeah. What, I, what, what did I say? Never mind. Never heard of it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing, seeing a sequel. But I wouldn't be like you know I, I don't know I, I have I sort of I'm kind of split on that to be honest I think I would definitely read it and I would I would imagine it would be good but I hesitate to predict that it would be as good as this because it's sort of you know, you know there's something there's something really special about this sort of one and done nature I think and I think that uh, this works well on its own this doesn't really demand a sequel. What about the Mad Monk story though? I mean. Well, the Mad Monk and the Monster of Men were both like sort of retellings of Golden Age stories, so that didn't really count for me. Okay, I see. Uh, I do agree. You know, I think that's just the issue, or it's not really an issue, I guess, but it's just hard. It's hard for movies to do this, for books, uh, for anything to follow up the success of the first one. And even, you know, I'm reading um, Marvelous Land of Oz, which was the second book, and L. Frank Baum like really hit the jackpot with Wizard of Oz, and then it went to Broadway, and it was awesome. And so he wrote Marvelous Land of Oz with this intent of having another success on Broadway, and then it bombed in Chicago. So I mean, it's <laughs> tough to follow up the success of uh, of something that is that is great. Um, so I, I definitely agree with Donovan on that. I think it'd be interesting to see what. Um, the sequel would be, and it'd be awesome to really get more into the relationship between the different members and just develop them different or develop them more and and see a new challenge and and new uh, villains. I I would love to see it, but I I don't think it will happen. Sadly, <laughs> I, I do agree that it won't happen. But you know, as far as you know, this book is concerned, it it has already gone to the length that it can go, you know, the distance actually that it can go where they've gone up the food chain and hit the top and just came down. You know, they've already went up the food chain about the about government and it goes from one person to another. And it's like, how many, how much more is there? You know, can it go further up with the government? We don't know, but you know, as far as the story stories can be concerned, it's already a completed, um, uh, it's already a complete story you know as if they and i'm entertaining the idea if they do if they do think like hey man can we get him back to do something else they could go further and deeper into um the storyline of privacy and you know there could be conflict between robin and batman discussing about him becoming a hero and they kind of have at it and then the you know the government could use that to their advantage to really break Batman down and kind of you know not employ Robin but kind of use him um, for espionage to really get to Batman to stop him and so on forth. Man, you know, fanficking already. I know. I, sometimes when it comes to stories and I really do like it, it's like okay let's let's stress the imagination let's keep going. I'm just that kind of person, but as <laughs> you know. As far as this book is concerned, it's already a completed story. I don't think Paul. I think Paul Pope knows that he has done something magical, <laughs> in a way, based on science fiction, based on mystery. That he's done something great, and like anything else, you should leave the the best that you have. Leave it alone. Let's stay golden for as long as you can make it and do something else. You know, um, which I kind of feel for Scott Snyder at this point, but that's a whole nother subject. Um, so yeah. 
Uh oh. Um, <laughs> 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 I don't know, I'm not going to touch that one right now. Um, I, I, you know, I'm in the camp of I would like to see a sequel, just because I enjoyed the story so much. Um, it's 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 an original story, and I, and I would, and I think I would like to see a sequel because I think that there's enough there to where you're not making an excuse for a sequel, but there's there's enough there to build on on the story without having to go. Okay, we need a let's do a cash grab. Let's do Batman Year, you know, one oh one and uh let's get Paul Pope back and it's gonna be a great cash grab and we can make an absolute format of them together. It's gonna be awesome. We can make a lot of money at it. Um I think there's enough here to legitimately tell tell another story. Um so in, in that vein I think I would like to see a, to see a sequel. Um my favorite scene in this book, which was kind of strange, was the scene when Commissioner Gordon is, is or not Commissioner Gordon, Captain Gordon in the future is trying to figure out the uh the password for Commissioner Gordon's laptop, and we kind of get all the name checks in there, and he finally gets it open. For some reason, that scene really stuck out to me as my favorite scene. So I was curious, out of these four issues, what was everyone's favorite scene, favorite part of the book? Uh, that's a good one because I had a lot of I had a lot of uh, points I really enjoyed. I will say I I enjoyed issue three the best out of the whole series because I felt like it really like just the action was really awesome. Um, especially there was this one scene where Batman, like, you know, kind of stands up, I guess, after an explosion, and all the cops are freaking out. It's like, he's still standing. He kind of just, like, starts laughing. He's like, oh, he's laughing at us. I think it might be when, um, I forget the telepath's name, but, uh, he, like, you know, says, you know, stop. And he's like, and Batman stops. He's like, ah, oh, it's a telepath. Who are you? And you hear, you see, he almost gets it. He's like, uh, bro, bro, Batman. And like he, he's trying so hard not to spell it, and then like the guy's attention loses for a second. He gets clocked in the face. I thought that was <laughs> really, really cool. Um, you I mean would, Mercer? I would... Sorry? You mean Mercer? Mercer, yeah. Like the guy, you know, the ball guy, the telepath. So uh, that might be my scene. Uh, my favorite scene, a run over would be in, at the, near the end of uh, issue four where he says, Who are you? You'll never know. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. But uh, I, would, I would toss up those as uh, my favorite scenes combined. I love uh, the intro scene just at the very beginning where, I mean, there's just, and this happens several times throughout the entire story, just panels, uh, and, and they're, they're long sort of landscape panels showing like a bit of action at a time, and I just loved having, you know, just like we were talking about, just getting dropped into that action, and there's just so much movement in the beginning, and him running, and, and injured, and really belabored you know something i noticed about this entire thing is that he really huffs a lot so i don't another reason why i may not be bruce wayne is the fact that he seems slightly out of shape for batman because i there were so many panels of huff, huff, huffing oh, he has 100 he it, no it's not bruce wayne this is an you know he's got to be peak peak athletic condition but I, I think the intro scene was definitely a, a great one as well as at the end when the two Batmans are out, um, and just the different helicopters and everything, that was also great. Um, as far as interesting panels, I'm a sucker for scenery. So the fact that I can see the city looking grim and dark, and then you have these high tech, um, I guess you know, patrol, patrol, uh, patrol mobiles running over the city, it just had that awesome grit and i love those kinds of things especially when you had robin dressed as batman he's trying to dodge everyone and the action sequence towards the last book was really really good for me because i love that kind of stuff (laughs) i'm a sucker for it every time and when you see batman in 
the first book and you see him on the camera, it just creates that kind of scare and that mystical part of him. The fact that he could be more than human and it terrifies the crap out of people. And you see that in book one where you have the official, he's just losing his breath. Like, Oh my God, like he's, he's just a man. He's just a man. He's just a man. And I love that because it creates mystery and it creates you know, sense of darkness to the character. And it, in some ways, you kind of, sometimes if you get too immersed into the story, you kind of feel that you start to believe it too. And I love when they try to bring the fans or bring the reader into the book and make them believe what's going on. And, you know, Pope does have a sense of darkness to him. I and mean, you can see it all throughout the pages. And, um, you know, I love the fact that you see the huffing, <laughs> you know, the huffing and the puffing, because it's like he's when it's all said and done, when you take away all the the crap that's around him, the fact that he's he looks invincible, the fact that he climbs things, the fact that he's a, a dark figure, he's no more than a man than anyone else. And that's something that Pope definitely was going for. It's like he's a man, but you can believe in this man. He's more than just a, more than just a man he's something else but he can't he can be killed he can be stopped but something about him his essence screams louder than anything else and you know that's why i really loved about this book and you know the panels do scream it so the the other my second favorite scene i don't know if you want to put it panel would be where commissioner yendel from the dark knight returns gets name checked um, yeah, they said in '86 it was Commissioner Commissioner Yendel that, that that saw him. So I was going to follow up that with you guys real fast. Do you think that this works in that Dark Knight Returns universe? Maybe as a as a better sequel than Dark Knight Strikes Again, even to what happens farther on down the line with Batman. Well, it's funny because you know the whole concept of uh, you know him existing since 1939 and the different eras being the same person. Almost doesn't make sense, <laughs> but uh, I like it still. You know, it's just like the Grant Morrison theory. It's like you know everything's applicable in terms of his history. Do I think this could be a better? Se- I mean, that's sort of a subjective kind of question. If I think so, but I mean, you know, honestly, I enjoyed this. So, to me, this feels very much more like a year one. And I think the Dark Knight Returns was more specifically about you know definitively Bruce Wayne coming back, whereas this is a bit more ambiguous. I'm not sure if I would couch it with that necessarily, but um. I mean, this this works well, at, you know, reading alongside Dark Knight Returns, I think. I have not read The Dark Knight Strikes Again. Um, I saw it at a bookstore yeah, once, don't. and I texted Donovan. And I said, hey, I found this Dark Knight. Oh, it was like a used bookstore, so it would have been cheaper. And I texted him, and it took him 20 minutes to get back to me. What a great friend he is. And um, yeah. he said, no. <laughs> he said, no, don't get it, which luckily I didn't. Even though it took him twenty minutes to get back to me, so I can't really. I was writhing really, on the floor. Yeah, you know, whatever. It, <laughs> I can't really uh, say. I guess whether you know it's it's better or worse than that as a, as a follow up. I think it's great that we've got you know, Dark Knight Returns and we see Bruce Wayne as older, and then there is sort of this like large time skip where the world was potentially without a Batman for a very long time, and now you've got him coming back once again. I, I think in that way, it, it does uh, serve a great uh, purpose. Wow, that's a good question. And um, it, it is better. You know, I, the thing about me is that I don't really 
think about Frank Miller's books too much. I just don't sometimes. Because on its own, on its own little island, it's perfect. <laughs> and you try to connect it with something else, and it's like, Ugh. um But as far as this book is concerned, I think it does have a nice connection. It's more of, it's not a, a thread <laughs> that connects to it. It's kind of like a dotted line, like dot, 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 dot. This is what happens. Um so as far as as far as I'm concerned, I don't really think about this book too much connected to Frank Miller. I mean, it, it is heavily influenced by it, and that's as much as you can say. Um, because the thing is, the whole thing about Frank Miller is that he centers around Bruce Wayne, whereas this book, it doesn't really center around Bruce Wayne. It's more caught up towards the end, like, hey, throw out the name, Bruce Wayne. could still be him. Who knows? Lazarus Pitts. Um, but for this one, it's more about Batman, and it's more about him as well not as an inspiration but more as like a force to be reckoned with and that he's here he's back and he's starting up some real stuff (laughs) i i agree with everyone's comments i think it's really cool though that on, on, on a personal viewpoint of enjoyment for the book that this is one of the few books in or out of continuity uh, that really sets itself in that universe. I mean, it goes out of the way, like we talked about earlier to show the kind of fatter Batman in 1986, when is which in Dark Knight Returns is set, and they, they name check Commissioner Yindel. So I, I agree with what everyone says, but I think it's just cool that they kind of even segued it in there and made it part of that continuity. Um, I thought it was a cool way to do it. Uh, one last question here before we do the wrap-ups, everyone, and this one's going to be co- not plot-related or character-related, I am actually more curious as to what everyone thought about the overall art of the book and the fact that, in my opinion, this seemed, and everyone else here so far seems like they really enjoyed it. It was a very cohesive story. Do you think the fact that Paul Pope wrote and illustrated the book kind of let him tell the story exactly the way he wanted to? And what did you think overall about the art of the book? Oh, undoubtedly. I think that like when, a, when an artist also is the writer and tells the story they want to do, I don't think I've ever seen a situation where that's not just not produce something really special. Um, I think that this is one of those things where, you know, this kind of reminds me back to what we were saying about the last issue of Nightwing on the comic cast is that uh, um, Hispanic writers have had a serious influx in the comic industry in the last few years, which is a great thing. I think that uh, this is an extremely stylized book, you know, with extremely distinct style. And um, personally, I mean, I will say I don't want to see this in a main Batman comic because I think it's a bit too alternative. And, you know, I'm not really saying, like, this has no place in a Batman comic. Batman comics need to be this and that. Necessarily, I think that, like, uh, a monthly a monthly schedule could probably kind of restrain the art a bit. I think this sort of freeform alternative style works excellent as, uh, as a, you know, for stories like this. And I think that, like, um, the art was uh, really... I mean, the art did what it needed. It did what it needed to do. And, like, in the way it did it was excellent. Like, the scenes where Batman's, like, kind of, in, you know, in the... Uh, I think it was like 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 one of the vents in at the top of issue, the bottom of issue two, top of issue three, and all that stuff, and like the colors and everything, it worked really well. This is a this is something that I could, I could very easily be, be see being made into a uh, DC universe movie, and I think that um the art would uh, complement that a lot. So I think that like the art was great, and I think that it helped working in this sort of like sort of one shot story uh, scenario. Yeah, I let's see here. I'm trying to think of the other times that we see this. Was right. Mad Monk also written and drawn by the same guy? Yep. That was one of them and the Monster Man and we've got Noel. That's one of those and uh I think it's great because that's going to best capture the writer's vision because once you put it down 
and you give your script. The script, I mean, what I've seen, there's only so much stage direction that you can basically give to your artist. And he's going to read it, and he's got his own interpretation. And it may, of course, obviously turn out wonderfully, but it's it's probably not going to be 100% of what the writer initially uh, intended for it to be. So I think that it's great that he got to do it by himself um i the art is different uh but i mean that's not you know it's not a bad thing i just want sometimes i i looked at batman and i wondered if he were asian basically i mean all the characters except <laughs> for the females seem to have a slight asian just like like the eyes were slightly you know you know i i don't i don't want to sound racist but no, you don't. <laughs> in my opinion, they all they all had sort of an Asian uh, feel to it, which is like pretty cool. I thought, well, maybe this is. I mean, it's well, it's not Bruce Wayne, as I said before, but maybe this is uh, what we've got here in the future. Um, I, I think it it. I don't know. It rocked the story. I think that it fit the story well. It was dark and it had its own edge to it, just like uh, Two Face faces or Batman faces did, and and Long Halloween. I think that it really worked well with with what was going down. Do you know the thing about Pope is the fact that he's heavily influenced by manga, so oh, it does okay. it does show. I mean, it really does. I mean, you know, he also tells us the future of what's going to happen to us. So. For this, you know, he's heavily influenced by manga. You see some illustration. He has really good percept, um, kind of like angles of how you see certain characters and the scenery itself looks like it could be from a manga book. And that's what attracted me the most to this book, ultimately, is like, because I've read mangas more than I ever did American comic books. Don't ask me why, because I probably didn't like how it looked on paper <laughs> at all. You know, and you know as far as a writer who's an artist doing their own book if the story is good and it has a good direction and and it's phenomenal i mean it's too perfect to actually say all those things in one but if if you're a good writer and you could do your own art and it's sick and it's awesome go for it you know but if you are if you know you are a, a decent writer maybe even close to being craptastic don't do it that's my whole thing and that it crushes me when an artist they give us a story but it's like what like what the hell is this what crap are you trying to tell me here cuz i can i just spent 2.99 for this book you <laughs> son of a it, it 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 can you know i'm all about art that's my thing and the thing is you can have great artwork and a crappy story and it'll still kind of prevail but if the story is crap and the art is even crappier or maybe it's good but it doesn't hold up to the level it's supposed to be then you know you're kind of out of luck and i'm just happy that he got to do both and he as you can see here he is a good writer as well as a great artist so he is both writer and director and that's awesome for me he's like quentin tarantino in my book that's just perfect <laughs> um you know but it, it it really does depend on the person who's doing it they have a certain vision great is that the only vision they can do okay whatever just don't ask them to do, hey, man, you did great with Batman. Let's go do Wonder Woman and then you're crap on Wonder Woman. Don't do that. If you know, he knew his limitations, Pulp. He really did know what he could do. He was already a fan of Batman. He knew his history. He knew what he had to do. I'm sure if he was to replicate it with Green Lantern, I'm sure it would be a flop, you know. <laughs> so it's all 
you have to really know your limitations as a person and what you're really into. And that's something they should, that DC should really bring up to their people. Like, if you know the limitations of your writers and your artists, put them where they'll shine. And Pope does put himself in a position where he shines the most in his book. So it really does depend with me. I think that – I agree with Donovan. I think it's really cool when you see – the, the creator also be the artist. I think that one thing you, you know is that there's nothing lost in translation. Um, and also, it also brings an account, some accountability. It's not one where you go, well, that's not the idea I have, but the artist screwed it up. Or the artist goes, hey, I just drew what I was working with. You know? Um, so it does take that accountability uh, level up a little higher. It's not um, the style of art I traditionally like, uh, but I really enjoy it in this context. Like Donovan said, I don't think I'd want to see this as a every month appearing in Batman or Detective, this type of art. But for this type of, of special, one-off, uh, its-own-world story, I think it all this, this kind of change in traditional art reinforces it as that this is a unique story in a unique world. Um, so I really, really liked it. I just wonder <clears> – <throat> so Christina brought up – and this isn't like me being Uh-oh. facetious or anything. Mm-mm. No, you brought up the, about the colonoscopy thing, and I certainly <laughs> caught that and everything. I wasn't sure whether or not we were supposed to take that as a straight, simple, matter-of-fact statement, those weird things. Like, was he really bugged inside of his body? And then what exactly is – so this is just a question of details. I just wasn't sure what it was because we see those weird things. It seems like they're the future of thumb drives. But mm-hmm. what what is the red, like, little ball that Tora touches at the end? Like, what are these things? You know, they're just variation. The red little ball, I think, is a variation of a mouse so that she can, like, kind of move oh, around on. So, I you see. know, it's kind of like your own personal mouse that you put in your pocket and you're like, okay, here's my mouse. Because everything's virtual. Anywhere you go, you could be on the toilet. I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you could be on the toilet and you could definitely be on the computer, you know, without actually carrying it around with you. You know, it's kind of like the iPad, only much lighter. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'd like everyone here to, to give their, their, their kind of overall thoughts on what they thought of Batman Year 100 as a wrap-up, and then your rating out of five batterings. Kick us off, Donovan. Well, you know, I, again, I kind of inferred earlier, I remember when this came out, I, I remember this coming out at a time where I think the Batman cartoon was kind of up and, have, up and you know, kind of really popular. And, um, you know, I really, the, the art did kind of turn me off, but I did, I did give it a shot, I didn't know what was going on. So I kind of just kind of flipped it backwards. Uh, but I remember getting a lot of praise. So looking at this again, I thought, you know, well, I'm an adult now, so I understand everything, obviously. And I sat down and read it, and I really, really enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. And by issue three, I was still, like, like, just had a smile on my face. This is a really fun, unique Batman story. I don't think this story is really like much uh, any other story uh, that's been told in a while. And I think that Paul Pope deserves a lot of credit for, uh, you know, getting this kind of story out there. Because I think this is, like, one of the better... Uh, Elseworld miniseries uh, that's been bat- done in Batman in a long, long time, to be honest. And I, I'm not sure there's, there's really been that many, but um, this is definitely one of, like, in my top five of uh, Elseworld Batman tales. So I will give this 4.5 out of 5 Batarangs. This, <laughs> I have to say, when I started into this, I had no idea what it was about. I had my ideas of what I thought it was going to be about. Uh, basically, what I thought it was going to be was um, Batman meets Spider-Man Reign. And boy, am I so glad I was really off base on that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think just leave all your preconceived notions behind. And I think this is a story that is best read twice. Uh, I only read it once, but um, I, I am excited to read it again. 
because I think there are a lot of details in Minutiae that you sort of miss uh, when you're reading it your first time. And I don't know. It's great. I And definitely agree with Don that it's just something that I don't think we've really seen before. And it's got that classic Batman feel to it if you're one of those people that really like it. But it sort of turns its on it turns it on its head and and adds a lot of originality to it as well i would give it a four out of five this is a book that can stand the test of times this is something that you can read over and over again and truly not become too bored with it you know and i I kind of feel that you know as the years progress in our lives or in other people's lives you could read as a teenager and say this is so awesome and read when you're 25 and say i can understand the political and the um the meta of this entire book you know and you could read when you're much older and say well this is how things were back then if parts of this book do come up where your colonoscopy is on a green disc you know (laughs) (laughs) and for me you know this is my first time reading it so i'm gonna say it out there you know I dug it. I dug the art. I am all about grit and I'm all about pencil art and just the sheer messiness. Like it's not really messy, but it's kind of like it's not conventional. And I do enjoy those kinds of things. I mean, some things could be too out there, but this was just in the realm where it's you can you can just be interested in it and like it for the most part. So as far as this book, as far as this book goes, it does it does stick to, you know, the real world and it keeps you grounded, but at the same time excites you with the exaggerated points of the whole book. And it does fill your need. You're kind of like your Batman fix, or maybe, you know, you can read it again and get more fixes from it because you might dive more into it and read more details and look at the art and see more into it. You know, it's test of time's book. That's what I, that's all I can really say. (laughs) Definitely. I'm, 4.8 4.8 out of 5? Um, my final thoughts on Batman Year 100 are that it's a really cool book. It's not a perfect book. It's you know It's got some stuff I would change about it, but it's a really well done book, and it's enjoyable. Um, I think that's something that sometimes we miss in comics is just their enjoyment factor. You know, Do I enjoy this comic? And I really, really enjoy this comic book. I think the art is different from what I normally enjoy, but very cool. I think it's open enough to uh, to make me think about it. It's got shades of you know 1984 Orwell in it, um, mm-hmm. and I really really enjoy the book. So I am also going to give the book four and a half out of five batterings, which means our composite ranking for this book is four point six three out of five batterings. Um, so I'd like to thank uh, everybody for coming on today uh, i'd like to remind everyone to go to the website and check out everything we have to offer there um and please join our facebook group if you have not already done so um we would really appreciate that next time on tbu collected we're going to be doing death by design the original batman graphic novel so hopefully we'll see you all then uh this is ed this is don this is stella and this is christina from dark night news Thank you so much for listening. Everyone have a great day. Adios. Goodbye. Boy, boy. Nothing from Stella? Just nothing? Uh, ciao?
Tune in tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. Let me ask you, Stella, what would you give Joker? What kind of death sentence would you give Joker since you're saying he, he needs to get off? <laughs> what? Uh, um, something that, you know, would follow through. I, I have no idea what would work best for him. I'm sure he it. would get – you'd have to somehow separate his head from his body, I'm sure. Would you, I, wow. I, got it, I got it. You would, you would shoot him in the spine and then lock him in a warehouse with dynamite. I'd that lock sounds like something James Jr. would do. <laughs> well, being as the person who runs the Oracle podcast, uh, I gotta say that um, I, I don't interesting. Know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think she fainted. Um, you know, personally, I'm I, just thinking of something to say when it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my my time. <laughs> um, man, I mean, just. I almost wish Cassandra Kane just never existed, and we should just. <laughs> now Donovan has uh, has fainted. I I, I, actually, I I actually hung up the call. Yeah, he disappeared. <laughs> oh, I was so disgusted. I, I, I meant to I meant to hang you up, but I actually hit my own. But uh, oh it's, boy, it's recording now. Is that does that exist? No, it does. It does now. <laughs> I don't know if Dustin's gonna like that. I'm always a breaker. I break everything. That's yeah. my brother. We keep, we keep it. After me. I like 4.8. That's a, that's a unique one. We're going to keep that one in there. Dustin will <laughs> probably senior edit us, but I like it.